reading is from Numbers, Numbers 25. It's on page 115 in your pew Bibles. So Numbers 25. 25 verses 1 through 13. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to the, sacri- to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the Israel's, to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest saw this, he, was, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite and into the woman's body. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped, but those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. For he was as zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Therefore tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood, because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. May God bless the reading of his word. And so with Palm Sunday here and Good Friday coming, and then Easter after that, we've been looking at, we've been addressing the question for the last few weeks of why did Jesus die? And in particular, what did his death accomplish for us? And we have a lot of Christian terminology we often use, but without understanding it all that well. And we kind of use it as if it's all synonymous. Justification, redemption, propitiation, reconciliation, salvation. But these all, all these terms have different meanings. And it's not just an intellectual exercise. Because each of the terms tells us a little bit something different, a little bit different about our sin. And how our sin is an obstacle between us and God. Each of these terms reflects on sin from a slightly different angle. And if sin is the problem, then each of the solutions, each of these terms describes a solution that's a little bit different than the others. And what they're trying to do is take imagery from the daily life, and use that to clarify how sin affects our relationship with God and then how God has intervened to solve that problem. So originally, all of these terms came from daily life. And so we looked at them, uh, several of them. Well, we've looked already at justification and we've looked at redemption. Now, if you look inside your bulletin, uh, there, there is a, the first page of, uh, inside your bulletin should be a little yellow insert like this where the prayer guide on the back Prayer guide on the back. And then on the front is a chart. Now, this chart is very important. This 
chart is very useful. Well, it has, you know, we, we actually spent some time together last week to fill it out. We won't do it this week, maybe next week. But this week we won't fill it out. But here's why this chart is so important. Well, first of all, you know, we celebrate this week. Why it's really important? We celebrate this week what Jesus has done for us, particularly in the crucifixion and the resurrection. And it's really embarrassing if we can't articulate what Jesus has done for us. Well, not embarrassing. Forget that. It's not an issue of shame. It's really not entirely respectful. If Jesus went to all this trouble to do it, and, and we can't even understand how the New Testament describes it. So we want to treat Jesus with proper respect, and so that's why it's really important. But there's a second reason, a subsidiary reason, a subordinate reason why it's important. It's because if you come to the potluck on Easter, we have an Easter potluck, the, the, the announcements will explain it further, but we'll have an Easter potluck. There will be cream pies, homemade cream pies, not those yucky store-bought things, homemade cream pies. But if you want a piece of homemade cream pie, the crust is not homemade, but the insides is. There's no pudding mix here. This is proper pie. If you want a piece of homemade cream pie, banana cream pie, chocolate cream pie, chocolate banana cream pie, or lemon meringue pie, only one piece, you've got to fill out that chart. <laughs> Accurately. Now, if you fill it out four times, you don't get four pieces. But still, you know, it's a, it's a decent pie. My son said, you've got to make those pies again this year. Last year we didn't have them, and the pies, store-bought pies really don't cut it. So even my son thinks my pies are good. So if you haven't signed up for this potluck, do sign up. Otherwise, Pastor David won't tell you what to bring, and you can't come, and you can't have the pie even if you've got a chart. But anyway, there you are. Today, today we're going to look at a word which is, the other words, justification. Justification, really easy to remember, right? Because it's related to justice. And where do you get justice? You hope in a court of law. So justification takes an image of a court of law and God is the judge presiding over it. Our sin is a crime and then God passes verdict on our sin. Only he doesn't convict us of crime. Because Jesus is convicted of crime in our place. And Jesus takes the punishment and so we're acquitted. Uh, that's justification. It's an image from daily life. And then redemption is not so accessible to us because we don't... We, oh, typically have slaves or prisoners of war anymore. But, you know, you might redeem coupons, for example. We redeem. You know, redeem is exchanging one thing for another. And the whole idea of redemption in a slave society, the whole idea was sin doesn't just make us guilty of a crime. Sin makes us victims. It, it enslaves us. We're enslaved because we're, we're facing a punishment. But we're also enslaved because it, it becomes a habit, an addiction, and we can't break free. So the idea of redemption is that Jesus intervenes and he buys, he ransoms us out of slavery. Now, the price, the ransom price for us is his life. He gives his life to ransom us so that we no longer are slaves. We are no longer POWs. Now we're free. Now those two images come from daily life. From secular life. You know, life outside the church. Today we're going to look at propitiation. And this is a word we don't use so much anymore, and we're happy not to use it. But it was very common. At one time, people knew what propitiation was. But it's not a metaphor from outside in daily life. It's a metaphor from religious life, actually. Now, I don't think the, these kind of movies exist anymore. They're not politically correct. But when I was a kid, you know, there was a, we would often see movies on TV that would illustrate propitiation. Not intentionally, but they would illustrate what propitiation is. 
You'd see some primitive tribal group. You know, and primitive and tribal always kind of coalesce. That's why it's not politically correct. Some primitive tribal group. We'd be facing a crisis. A volcano would erupt. Now, if ever of you have seen any of these movies, what, what happens with a primitive tribal group in this stereotype? A volcano erupts. Why does the volcano erupt? Always because the gods are angry with us. And so what do you do to appease the gods? You take some teenage girl. I don't know why, girls. It's not fair. I don't have any idea why they do this. But you take a teenage girl, you march her up to the volcano, and you throw her in, right? And then this appeases the gods who stop the volcano. So you get an angry god, you got violent consequences, and then you throw in a sacrifice and we're all set. That's the notion of propitiation. And it's common enough, you know, in Greco-Roman religion, the idea is that the gods are capricious. You never know what will set them off. Maybe they woke up and, uh, early one morning, or, you know, they had a bad hair day, and uh, they get set off. And then they go hassle you. And if, so if your life is miserable, it's because some god is angry with you. And you, got help, you need help from a medium, from a temple priest. You need help. This is not just Greco-Roman religion. The same kind of thing happens in traditional Chinese religion. So you need help from the temple to figure out which god is angry, what he's angry about, and what you've got to do to appease him. This is all the concept of propitiation. And we see it in Scripture. The notion that God is angry. Now, we don't use the word propitiation much because we don't like to talk about God being angry. But just as sin is a crime, just as sin is addictive behavior, so also sin makes God angry. Now, the metaphor of justification does not assume that, that God is angry. God is a judge. And what do we look for in judges? We look for dispassionate judges who will evaluate the case on the merits of things. So justification does not assume an angry God. And redemption assumes a sympathetic God. We're slaves. We, we feel great sympathy for slaves. And God has great sympathy for us. But propitiation assumes something else. Propitiation assumes that God doesn't just take our sin dispassionately, but that he gets angry about it. And propitiation doesn't assume just we're the slaves. Propitiation assumes that we're intentionally rebellious against God. We don't really care. Do what you want. We don't care about you. And this makes God angry. And propitiation starts with that assumption. The problem is this, that God is angry. Now let's pause here for just a moment and think about it. It seems like, if you look at the Christian context today, American context, it seems like God needs help with his marketing. And there's plenty of people that are willing to provide some help with marketing. As early as the 100 years after Jesus, within 100 years after Jesus, there was a fellow named Marcion. Now, Marcion thought God needed help. He needed to have his image had to be burnished. Because there's all this stuff about angry God. So Marcion came up with this notion that it was a God of the Old Testament who's angry. 
Not the God of the New Testament. And you've got two different gods in the Bible. You've got the God of the Old Testament. He's angry. And he'd condemn people. And, you know, he'd kill people. But the Jesus of the New Testament, he's the good and kind God. The gentler version of God. And he loved people. And so you had two different gods. Now this is... And he was declared a heretic. With, he was the first heretic probably in the early church. But more recently, I was reading a book that tried to redeem and said, no, 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 Marcion was wrong, but let's, how, do, how do we can redeem it? How can we make God better? How can we help his marketing strategy? And this author says, not only is the God in the New Testament kind and gentle, but the God in the Old Testament was kind and gentle. And goes through all the Old Testament, citing one case after another, where we see a kind and gentle God. And therefore concludes... Grace knows no limits. God will overlook anything we do. God is incredibly tolerant. God's not going to get all angry and bent out of shape over how we live. And so we improve God's marketing. What I want to argue this morning, what I want to show you from the text this morning, is that if we make God purely kind and gentle, we don't improve this is not a new and improved version of God. If we make God always gracious, always merciful, if we say that grace has no limits, we don't make God's, we don't honor God's love. We actually take away from God's love. The notion of propitiation begins with this, that God is incredibly angry with people who sin. God hates the sin and scripture will also say God hates the sinner. God is incredibly, it's not, it's not a personal enemy, but God is incredibly angry about these things. That doesn't minimize his love. That accentuates his love. And let's see how it happens in the text before us. Okay, so turn with me, first of all, to Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25, page no, let's see, 115, Numbers 25. This is the text that was read for us before. What's the problem in Numbers 25? While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. Here are these men doing the two things that make God the angriest. Sexual immorality and idolatry. They're combining the two of them. They're worshiping other gods and they're engaging in uh, unmarried sex with uh, the worshipers of other gods. The people ate their sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. And notice verse 3. And the Lord's anger burned against them. Here's the problem. God was angry over their sin. Notice again, verse 4 accentuates it. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord. Why? So that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. And then again, we see the same idea in verse 10. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away. From the Israelites. Verse 13. He gives an eternal reward. Eternal priesthood. To Phineas and his descendants. Why? 
because he was zealous for the honor of his God and he made atonement. He turned away. When you see made atonement, the, 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 the idea here is, the, the language here is, he turned away the anger of the Lord. Here we have the, the basic premise. Here's a problem. God is angry. And notice the solution in this text. How does Phineas propitiate the angry God? Moses calls a gathering of all the Israelites, and they're all together, and Moses criticizes their sin. They're having a service of repentance. And while they're in the midst of repenting for their sin, some fellow brings some new hookup through their midst and goes into his tent. And what does Phineas do to turn away the anger of God? Well, Moses has already told the people in verse 4, verse 5, each of you must put to death those of your people who've yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. God is so angry, he says, God's anger will never be satisfied until we kill all these people. And this fellow comes in with his new twists, goes into his tent, and verse 7, when Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the, the priest saw this, he left the assembly, he took a spear, and he followed the Israelite into the tent, and he drove the spear into both of them, right through the Israelite man, into the woman's stomach. And then the plague stopped, but only after 24,000 people died. Is, does sin make God angry? 24,000 people died. Does sin make God angry? Phineas grabbed the spear, killed them both in one blow, and God says, well done! He doesn't say, this is not how we do things. He doesn't say this is uncivilized. He doesn't say, what are you getting so stressed about? He says, I will give you an eternal reward. You know, here's the solution. Kill the fools. Kill them barbarically. Doesn't matter as long as they're dead. Is God angry? Well, yeah. Sin is not just a crime. Sin is not just something that leads us into slavery and makes us a victim. Sin is something that arouses God's intense, intense anger. And propitiation is the solution to that. Verse 13. Phineas is rewarded with an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and he made atonement. He made propitiation. Phineas solved the problem. He killed the sinner and God's anger was alleviated. God's anger was appeased. This is how God is propitiated. The sinner dies. There's an obvious problem with this solution, however. Knowing what we do about human nature, even in our world, the number of sinners is always going to outnumber the, the, the zealous priests. And the other problem with this solution is it doesn't do the sinner a whole lot of good. It solves his problem, but only by killing him. This is like what they say about medical cures, right? Uh, the, the patient was healed and he died. 
this is a cure, but it's a final solution. And so we see later on, we won't spend a lot of time there. I'll reference it briefly. If you want to turn to Leviticus 16, we see God came up with another solution. A solution that was a little bit less permanent in Leviticus 16. You have the Day of Atonement is described there. You have the sacrificial system, and particularly the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16 is also concerned with propitiating God. The whole sacrificial system. And then once a year, a special day, the Day of Atonement propitiates God. Uh, chapters, Leviticus chapter 16, page 82. Chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. Notice here again. What does sacrifice assume? Why does God provide sacrifice? God speaks to Moses here after Aaron's sons die. Why did they die? They were priests. Why did they die? Chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. Aaron's sons were priests and they went before the Lord to make offerings in a way that God had not permitted. Because the priests disrespected God, he killed them. Again, the assumption behind propitiation, God's angry. Then God tells Moses how to have how to propitiate his anger. Tell your brother Aaron he's not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, or else he will die, for I am in the holy place. And then you take a look over at verse 15. He tells the priest how to appease his anger. The priest, verse 15, the priest shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people. And he will take its blood behind the curtain and he will sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of the atonement cover. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. So here's the second solution to dealing with sin and appeasing God. You kill an animal. You take the animal's blood and you put it on top of the cover of the altar. Now, the top of the cover of the altar had a particular term, uh, hilasterion. In, in Greek, the Greek version of the term was hilasterion. They would sprinkle the blood on the cover of the altar. And hilasterion, I only mention that because it's important later on. They would sprinkle that blood on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And then God's anger would be appeased. And he wouldn't kill the Israelites. That's why they offered sacrifices. Particularly the Day of Atonement. They still, just, still celebrate the Day of Atonement, even without the temple today. That's the point of the Day of Atonement is you take away God's anger and you wipe away the sin so God's no longer angry and he will bless his people, the Day of Atonement. Now this solution is a, a major improvement because who dies? Uh, not the human being. It's not a major improvement for the animal, but it's a major improvement for the sinner. Right? What one flaw is there in this system? It's a whole lot... More expedition. All you gotta do is buy an animal now, you don't have to die for your sin. You can buy an animal and the animal can die. That's an advantage, but what's the flaw? What's the drawback? Uh, what does Hebrews 10 tell us? The blood of animals can never atone for the sins of human beings. So the only flaw with this system from Leviticus 16 is, it doesn't solve God's anger. It doesn't take away our sin. 
It just postpones the day of accountability. It doesn't work. Animals can't die for human beings. So what is the final solution here? What does actually solve God's anger? And what does actually take away our sin? And there we read Romans chapter 3.25. Romans chapter 3.25, page 797. We'll spend a few minutes here. Romans 3.25, scripture says this. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. If you look at the NIV footnote, it says this. God presented Christ as the one who turns aside his wrath, taking away sin. God presented Christ as the one who turns aside his wrath. Here is the difference between Old Testament and New Testament. Not that God is no longer angry or angered by sin. God was angered by sin in the Old Testament. He's angered by sin in the New Testament. And not that God is somehow more gracious now because God was gracious in the Old Testament and it didn't save their lives. And God is gracious now in Jesus and it doesn't necessarily save lives. God is just and angry and merciful and gracious. That's all consistent. Here's the difference. Numbers 25. When Phineas sinned, no, no. When the, the, the anonymous man sinned, Phineas took a spear, went into the tent, and speared her. And the word used for that was make atonement. Hilaskamai. And now we read in Revelation, in Romans chapter, chapter 3, 25, we read, God presented Christ as the atoning sacrifice. God presented Christ as the hilasterion that takes aside his wrath. In Numbers, God commanded the death of that sinner. At Calvary, God permitted the death of his son. That's the difference between Old Testament and New. Phineas killed the sinner. God redeemed. God propitiated his own anger in order to save the sinner. Phineas, the righteous priest, speared both sinners. Jesus, the righteous priest, took the spear that was due to the sinners. This is the message of propitiation, that God is no less angered by sin today than he's ever been. But God has jumped in front of that spear in the person of his Christ, in the person of his son Christ, in order to save us from it. Romans 3.25 God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Remember Leviticus 16. Moses told the priest, make this sacrifice of atonement. And where do you sprinkle the blood? You sprinkle the blood on the hilasterion, the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. Romans 3.25 says Jesus is that hilasterion. When Moses said, sacrifice an animal, the New Testament tells us Jesus is that sacrifice. And when 
the Old Testament says, drop that blood on the Ark of the Covenant, on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, to take away sin. The New Testament, Romans 3 says, Jesus is that cover of the Ark of the Covenant. You see, Jesus is both the sacrifice that appeases God and takes away our sin, and he's the Ark of the Covenant, the place where our God is mollified and our sin is taken away. Jesus is both of these things. And Jesus is more. Jesus is the one who acts as priest to make this offering. And this is the message of propitiation, that God is angry, but that God intervenes in the person of his Son to appease his own anger. The cost of that was death. Not death of the sinner, not death of a lamb, but death of the Lamb of God, death of the Son of God, that God took our sin on himself, on his son. And he paid the price to appease himself. He paid the price of justice. He mollified his own anger by executing his son in our place. Jesus is the sacrificial victim, the, the atoning sacrifice. But Jesus is also the place where that blood is sprinkled in order to cleanse us. We sing this song, I know a place, a wonderful place, where accused and condemned find mercy and grace. At the cross, he died for my sins. At the cross, he gave us life again. I know a place, a wonderful place. What Romans 3.23 says, and that song is fine, but what Romans 3.23 tells us, or 3.25 tells us is this. It's not the cross that's that place. It's Jesus himself in his body through his death. Jesus is that place where we find mercy and grace. Jesus is that Ark of the Covenant which is sprinkled with blood. He's the one who, he's the sacrificial victim who gives his blood. He's the altar on which the blood is spilled. He is the one through whom we find mercy and grace. He is the one who propitiates the wrath of God and atones for our sin. He is the one who brings us life again. There's only one more piece we need to add to this picture. God is angry. God propitiates his anger through the execution, through the death of his son. One more piece we need to add to this picture because it's most extraordinary. 1 John 4.10 uses the same language of propitiation. It uses the same language of atoning sacrifice. 1 John 4.10 uses the same language from uh, Numbers 25 and from Leviticus 16. Uh, uh, 1 John 4.10, when he writes this, what he has in mind is what Phineas did to propitiate the anger of God. And what he has in mind is what the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, does to appease the wrath of God. And 1 John 4.10 says this. This is love. Not that we love God. But that he loved us and sent his son as what? An atoning sacrifice. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. You see how different this is from the Old Testament. Always before, propitiation is linked with anger. God is angry. He requires propitiation. What does 1 John say? This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
Numbers 25, God is angry and requires propitiation. Leviticus 16, God is angry, requires propitiation. Even Romans 3, God is angry and requires propitiation, but he provides a propitiation. Now 1 John 4, not God is angry. Therefore, he requires propitiation. But God is love. Therefore, he makes propitiation for our sins. And this is the, the New Testament doesn't deny the anger of God, but it puts the anger of God in, in a bigger context, in, in an envelope. It, it envelops the anger of God in the love of God. Oh, God is still angry about sin. He's angry when we turn our backs from him, on him. He's angry when we deny him. He's angry when we act in ways that are antithetical. We know are antithetical to how he wants us to act. He's still angry. But God envelops that anger in his love. As anger requires propitiation, his love causes him to make that propitiation. So here's why we do God no benefit if we turn him into a kinder, gentler, domesticated Jesus. If we turn him from Aslan, the great lion, into a little house cat. This is why we do him no advantage. As hard as it is to affirm the anger of God, and as much as we'd like to say, no, 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 God doesn't get angry ever at anything with anybody. Anybody can love their friends. It says nothing about God if he's not angry and still he loves us. We can do that without being God. Here's the message of propitiation and the anger of God. That God can be so angered by how we live and how we think and what we care about, that God can be so angered about these things that the only appropriate response is to kill us. And yet, he doesn't. He allows people to kill his own son. This is the message of Good Friday that we will celebrate this week. Not that evil men put Jesus to death. Not that hostile, angry people made him an innocent victim. What we celebrate this Friday is that our sin makes God angry. And God dealt with that anger. He appeased his own anger and he executed judgment not on us, but on his son. Or he allowed others to execute judgment on his son. He took the judgment on himself in the person of his son. That we, the objects of his anger and the objects of his love, might have life. Not because we deserve it, but because Jesus died for us. This is the message of propitiation. God is violently angry. And yet God is compellingly loving. And he allows that anger to be directed against himself. Jesus steps in front of that spear that we might not face that consequence. This is the God we celebrate at Good Friday. A God who's angry with our sin, but loves us even more deeply than his anger runs. Let's pray together.
Father, we do celebrate this. We refuse to be embarrassed by your anger because it's right. We have offended you. And you're a great and kind and merciful and generous God. And our offense against you is inflammatory. We don't hide from your anger. But we swim in your love and we praise you for that. That even though you're angry with our sin, your love intervenes. And Jesus absorbs your anger that we might have your kindness. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.